This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of family and the treasure and delight that children are to us and also to you. And we know that as much as we love them, you love them even more. So we pray, Lord, that your angels will guard them. We pray a blessing uh, on Hannah as she teaches. We pray that your spirit, Lord, would be deposited inside each of our sons and daughters, that you will raise them up to be mighty men and women of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I'm just going, I, know, I know we told everybody to turn these off, but I am going to make sure that I don't talk too long. Uh, there's an ejector seat just underneath me right now, okay? And once I hit 24 minutes, somebody's going to press it, and I'll be catapulted to the Temple Mountain, <laughs> which is where I want to be, yeah. yeah. So brothers and sisters, uh, who has not been here before? Who, has, who is in Christchurch for the very first time? Okay. Well, for those of us who are new, uh, this is the oldest Protestant church in the Middle East, it's an Anglican mission, and that's suddenly scary for everybody, but uh, the, yes, the Anglicans got here earlier before, every, before all the other guys, and uh, as an Anglican church, we follow a lectionary, which means that our reading cycle is appointed for us. So we read the Bible over three years, and different uh, portions are worked out. We're in what they call year C, and so we're reading our way through Luke, so we come to this portion which is unique, actually, to Luke. And uh, we have to wrestle with every little bit of uh, the teachings of Jesus, because they're obviously important, yes? Yes. And this uh, today is called the eighth Sunday after Pentecost, um, and we're in a thing called ordinary time, and they call it ordinary time because I can't figure out what else to call it. There's this big gap between Pentecost and, and sort of Advent, and no one knows what else to do, so they just throw green on, which is why our priest is wearing green, and every Sunday is just the eighth Sunday after Pentecost. And you can see from our readings, from Ecclesiastes, from Psalms, and from Luke, from Jesus himself, that the topic today is greed and vanity. And that, you have to admit, is so anti-cultural, isn't it? Isn't it? Most of us here come from the rich West. And we all are told, in particular, that if you're being blessed from the Lord, you will be wealthy. Be careful. So the context. Let's keep the Bible in context. Jesus is teaching a large crowd, begins at the beginning of Luke 12, large crowd. And uh, he's teaching a collection of warnings and encouragement. So encouragement that you'll have the Holy Spirit and you won't need to worry about when you're brought in front of kings and emperors and little warnings that you're not supposed to sin against the Holy Spirit. And I'm really glad that that portion wasn't allotted for me to speak today because I don't know what that is. But I'm probably going to guess you don't know what that is either. But I think we can all probably say none of us have ever done it. And so while he's teaching... All of a sudden, somebody yells out from the crowd. 
and uh, as though they haven't been listening to what Jesus said. I mean, seriously, Jesus got a big crowd and he's just said this incredible thing. All sins are going to be forgiven except for the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So the next question that should have come out of our mouths is what? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? But instead we get, hey, Lord, can you please separate um, the inheritance between me and my brother? It's like, man, did you just miss the point? Okay, at this point, you could imagine Jesus getting his disciples and saying, okay, uh, we're taking an exam now. I'm going to mark it in red uh, pen, which is why our Bibles are written in red ink, yeah? And you all fail. And I'm going to start again with some Chinese disciples because they just do everything I say. But what Jesus does say is he takes his opportunity to teach something very, very important. Now, Jesus has his disciples... And they are following him all on his way towards Jerusalem. He's talking to a large crowd. So there's a lot of people who have come out to hear him just for, for the day. Now, discipleship is not an invention of the Jewish people. It's actually an invention by the Greeks. Okay? They, they uh, invented the idea of gathering students. Uh, the Jewish people sort of perfected it. And disciples do not just show up for a two-hour Bible teaching. They stick to their rabbis. And they journey with him every day, learning how to be just like him. So at the end of three years, or three and a half years, or however long Jesus' ministry is, each of the disciples is supposed to look like a little Jesus. And that's actually our goal too. And one of the things that a disciple never does is tell the master what to do. Students don't tell teachers what to do, do they? I mean, if they do, get a different classroom. Disciples never tell Jesus what to do. You don't tell God what to do. God tells you what to do. So here you have some guy with the audacity, and he's not even given a name. The text just says, man. Right? Guy isn't worth having a, a name. He said, tell this man. Uh, tell my brother, judge between us of our inheritance. And so Jesus has the opportunity to, to teach not just the crowd, but also his disciples, and by extension, us. Now, there already is a rule in the Torah for how you divide up inheritance. Deuteronomy 21 tells you very clearly that when you come, when, when, when dad dies, get the family together, eldest son gets double. Everybody else gets one portion. Does that sound like fair? Not from usually where we're sitting, okay. but it's what's in the Torah. Eldest son gets double, youngest son gets only a half. Oh, okay. Um, but what happens if the younger brother has 10 kids and the older brother never got married? I mean, seriously, the guy, he's got no wife, he has no kids, he doesn't need double, but the younger guy has got 10 kids and he's working really hard and he could use a little bit extra. So can we do some leeway? And in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah, the answer is yes. 
You have the opportunity to say, you know, this, this actually uh, needs to be re-looked at. How do we know this? From the, the, the book of Numbers, where the division of the man called Zelophehad and his five daughters. Everyone know the story of Zelophehad? So there's this guy, and uh, he's quite well off, and he's got a nice little bunch of kids, but they're all girls. And in the Torah, it's very clear, you give the men stuff. But I've only got girls. What do I do? I know what the rule says, but maybe there's some leeway. So we go to, to go and see uh, Moses, and we say, Moses, you know, we've got a problem. Can we, can we actually inherit? Can women inherit Moses hasn't got a clue. In fact, it's very cool of Moses. Every time they ask him a question, he doesn't know. He always goes and sees God. Have you noticed that? It's, a, it's actually a good humility. Moses is one of, the, he's one of his characteristics is pure humility. Can you give me the answer? No, not really. I'll go ask the Lord. Okay? As opposed to um, some of us, myself included, where we pretend we know everything, <laughs> um, which is bad. But... The God comes along and says, yes, girls can inherit. And you get the first case in ancient antiquity where women are given a share. Isn't that incredible? Yes, it is. And uh, one of those daughters' names is a beautiful name called Tirza, which means beautiful. And uh, we ended up naming one of our daughters after her. So there is a tradition where you can... Uh, do some leeway, and it was the case that in antiquity you would, if you needed to uh, have a little little uh, discussion about the, the Bible in, in laws like this, you'd go find a rabbi and ask them to help. So Jesus comes along and he says, listen, can you please uh, separate between me and my, my brother and inheritance? And Jesus says, I'm not your judge, not in this. I'm a judge in other stuff, but not in this, not in this, this, this way. What's he a judge of? You already know it. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats judgment scene. When Jesus is giving the only judgment scene that we have in the Bible. And what does Jesus judge on? He doesn't say, hands up, who believed in Jesus? What does he say? He says, who gave me water when I was thirsty? Who gave me food when I was hungry? Who clothed me when I was naked? Who acted like me? Who had the same heart like me? Who, who, who actually was my disciple and mimicked me? So in this case, please, please judge between us. No, I'm gonna give you a warning Disciples, gather around. And for Luke, this is, uh, this is unique to his uh, gospel, but it's not unique to the Jewish people. Okay, this, this idea of, um, of being careful about greed and being careful about stuff and being careful about the pursuits of the culture is already clearly pointed out in books like Ecclesiastes and in the prayers of the Jewish people like the Psalms. And actually, this parable is not even unique to Luke. There's, it's already been, been done in a book called Sirach. Anyone ever heard of it? We'll get to it in a minute. 
But in, in places like Ecclesiastes, Kohelet in Hebrew, here you have, uh, it's attributed to Solomon, the smartest man on the planet. Okay? I mean, he had a thousand women, so he can't be that smart. Okay? But uh, he, he, he says, everything is vanity. I've watched, I've looked, I've watched people work hard. Guess what happens to them? They die. And all the stuff that they worked for, they give to somebody else who didn't work for it. And you go, wow. He says, this is, something's not quite right here. If this is our pursuit, if this is what we think makes us happy, we're all in trouble. So he concludes, it's all vanity. Be very careful. And, the, and we read the Psalms. The Psalm is the same. Rich, poor, you're all going to the same place. So be careful. And then in, in, uh, in, in Sirach, Sirach is a book in Hebrew, the Hachmal Yeshua ben Sirah, the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirah, which was a book developed uh, in the second century before, before Yeshua, before Jesus. And it's in everybody else's Bibles except ours. Uh, well, actually, it is in the, Catholic, uh, the Anglican Bible, but most Protestant Bibles don't have it. Okay? Uh, but it is in the reading tradition of the Anglican Church. And in, a, in, a, in, in the book of Sirach, verse, chapter 11, it says this in verse 18. One becomes rich through diligence and self-denial. You, know, you work hard. And the reward allotted to him is this. When he says, I have found rest. I shall feast. I shall eat and drink and will not worry for tomorrow. But he doesn't know how long until he leaves all his wealth to others. And so you've already got this discussion about the culture. And we, we live in a culture like that. We live in a culture that, 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 that we pursue wealth and happiness. And why not? Those are good things. You can do lots of things if you're rich. And all of us would like to be happy, I know. But there's something about the culture when it forces you to think that that truly is your identity. Have you got a university degree? No. But if you haven't, huh? why not? You should all go to university. Why? You should all be saddled with debt. Why? I don't know. I don't know anybody who would want to send their kids to a, to a university where they're told that they're animals, they come out mainly pagans, and they uh, usually despise themselves, their own culture, their parents, and, they, and, they, and they're grasping for an identity that's now empty. We want to push our kids into that environment and make them pay for it. Something's, something's wrong. I'm not saying universities are bad, but the culture around a university is definitely not good anymore. Wisdom is great. Pursue wisdom, gain understanding. But it's got to be in the right place. It's got to have the right worldview. It's got to have Jesus' worldview. And as he's been traveling with his disciples, he's been trying to teach them, this is the way God sees the world. This is the way we're supposed to see the world. God isn't against wealth. Just about every hero in the Bible is rich. 
Abraham's rich, David's rich, Solomon's rich, Jacob's rich, they're all rich, Isaac's rich, 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 rich. But there's one thing they're all good at. They're generous. They have the ability to share. And when they don't, God reproves them for it. It's a, a hallmark of the church. Who actually gives the most in church? The poor people. Isn't that sad? I've been in ministry now for 21 years. I've yet to see a millionaire walk in here and write us a check. Isn't that sad? Something happens when we get wealthy. Why is it that Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, yet everybody prays, prays for wealth? I would suggest bad prayer. I would suggest pray for the mind of God. Seek first the kingdom. Everything else comes, including generosity. Because God is incredibly wealthy. He's the richest person in the universe. And he is incredibly generous. He is generous with his kindness. He is generous with his love. He is generous with himself. He is generous with his spirit. He is generous with his goods. And he delights to give good things to his children. And if that's what God wants to do, guess what we should do? We should be just as generous, just as kind, just as, uh, as, as less self-centered as we could, more compassionate. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters, the culture around us has gone away, uh, away from God's worldview. And, and this developed, or largely to our own fault, but in the 1800s, there were two books that were competing with our culture. One of them was the Bible. Thanks, we had had the printing press and we had managed to translate it into multiple languages and we were mass producing it and by the 1800s, everybody had one. It's awesome. But there was another book out there by a guy called Charles Darwin and he wrote a book called Origins of the Species. And these two books were competing for your identity and your worldview. One book told you that you were special. One book told you that you were unique and that God loved the world so much that he came down to save it. And he wanted to live with his people. And he had a goal. And he had a plan. And he had a purpose. And he had a future. And he had a hope. And it was beautiful. And another book said, there's nothing special about you. You're a product of chemical soup. A bunch of little floating chemicals somehow managed to get together and then you crawled out of this soup. And later on you became able to walk upright. And that's all wonderful. But really, after you die there's nothing. So why bother? Survival of the fittest. Actually, I've actually rarely met a person who actually lives by that principle. Anyone know any atheists who actually live by the principle survival of the fittest? Basically, the weak should be crushed. That's what that, that, that theology teaches us. And those two worldviews are completely against each other. And, and so the, the world 
somehow tries to blend a little bit of God's theology in with its own. But I don't want to call it God. It'll say these things like, we have rights. We have inalienable rights. And you go, cool, where does that come from? No one can tell you. You have the right to life. Oh yeah, who gave you that? Where was that written down? What, what chemical soup bubbled up that idea? When you read the Bible, you actually only have one right. Did you know that? And it ain't the right to life. You don't have the right to take life. Thou shalt not murder. Okay? Life belongs to the Lord. He'll give it and he'll take it if he so wishes. And if he wants to take your breath, you can't say to him, you can't take it. It's mine. Hmm. The only right that you actually have in the Bible is the right to call yourself a son and daughter of God. And oh my gosh, is that not the best of rights? You can have nothing. You can have just a a shack out in the middle of nowhere and live on sand and proudly stand up and say, I'm a child of God. And he loves me very much. And I'm living in his world. It might not be very nice right now, but I do believe it will get better. That is the best of rights. We have this thing called a soul. That's if we believe we have a soul. In the time of of Jesus, they all believed they had a soul. Where do these souls come from? In Genesis chapter 2, when it sums up creation, it's a prayer that said every Shabbat. And it says, you know, the, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested from everything that the world was made to reproduce itself. Okay, so where do the souls come from? Does God actually make a new soul every time we need one? Is he still engaged in the act of creation? Wow. The Bible says no. So Jewish people have been thinking, where do these souls come from? And they don't know, so they come up with a bunch of traditions. One is, they're all hanging in the tree of life. That's one of the reasons why we're supposed to eat from it. And the other one is that they're all sort of sitting in heaven in a big well uh, called the well of souls. And uh, every time a new soul is made, angels come along and pick it up and deposit it in a woman and birds can see. That's why they're all chirping all the time. They're so happy that a new soul is coming. Even, even Paul hints to this in Romans where he says, when the full number of Gentiles has come in, then the end is here. And if you think about it logically, when God's ready to wrap up history, there is a finite number, isn't there? A finite number of people who will ever be born and, uh, and will ever die. So who's giving the soul? It's God. It all comes from the Lord. And out of anything that's on the planet, that's going to have to be the most important. Guarding your soul. Unfortunately, one, one worldview says you don't have one. There is no goal to this life. There is no point. Everything's just random. And another one says, no, there's a part of you that came from heaven. There's a part of you that's so special that God wants to make sure he can even buy it back, even when he owned it in the first place. And so... The, the, the lesson that Jesus is saying is beware of greed. 
One of the seven deadly sins. Everyone heard of the seven deadly sins? There is no list in the Bible called the seven deadly sins. Okay? Where did that come from? That came from the church during the Middle Ages who was reading the Bible and they said, there are seven things that turn our hearts from God. One of them is greed. One of them is greed, covetousness, and it's, it's listed here. You should turn your heart towards the Lord, says Jesus. Except this rich man had turned his heart towards his wealth and his stuff. And it's incredibly dangerous. And so it's a warning for you and I, brothers and sisters. It's a warning. It's a challenge for you and I. That if our hearts are not directed towards God, everything else is vain. It will end in nothing. You and I will die. How's that for a good positive sermon? (laughs) But we will also live forever. Thanks be to God. But the, the warning is there that we want to have hearts for the Lord and everything in the Bible is about the heart. Everything. Deuteronomy says, write these laws upon your heart. Circumcise your heart. God is going to take out your hearts of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Everything is about the heart and having your heart towards the Lord. Even ancient Jewish stoning. We always think they used to get a stone and hit people on the head. They didn't. Guess where they hit them? They would crush your chest chest, because it was about the heart. So we want to have hearts for God because God has a goal. God has hope. God has friendship. God has compassion. And if we're having the same heart for the Lord, then we're going to look like him. We will have compassion for each other. We will have kindness for each other. We'll have love for another. And if the Lord has blessed you with wealth, what are you going to do with it? You're going to share it. You're going to use it to make somebody else's day that little bit brighter. Because you can't take any of it with you. In fact, when you die, you're going to give it to somebody else. We write whole documents called wills saying how much we're going to give other people stuff. Okay? We're going to give things away just like God gives things away to the honor and glory of his name. And the world is going to get filled up with more love and more compassion and more hope and more kindness and more friendship. But if we fail to do that, if the love of many grows cold, we hold on to our greed. If we embrace the worldview of our culture and don't challenge it, brothers and sisters, we're in trouble. We will start to think, just like this man, that he did it. You read the passage, I have given a big harvest. My barns are too small. I shall build bigger barns. I shall put my stuff in these barns. I shall eat and drink. It was all my, my, my. And then God comes along and says, actually, your soul is mine. And I want it back. Ooh. To finish, very easily and very simply, when Yeshua is teaching and he's teaching his disciples about having his worldview, the worldview that God has, the way that God sees creation and sees the intricate 
intimate, uh, uh, infinite value that you have and you are to him and to each other. He says, seek first the kingdom. If you make God king and you put on his worldview, then everything else is added. For some of us, that might be a big house and a big car and a big TV screen. And if it is, great. I look forward to coming over and watching cricket with you. But if it is not, then please come to my house and hopefully I will share the little bit that I have with you. So brothers and sisters, seek first the kingdom. Everything else is added and you will have hope. You will have life. And that is the message we need to make sure that we teach our kids. Guard them against the greed of this world. Guard them against the worldview that tells them that they're just an animal and that there is no point. There is a point. There is a hope. There is a life. And it starts right now. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.